Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me each week as we make our way through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, in case you listen to this on iTunes and have not checked out my YouTube channel, um, I invite you to check it out and see that each week now I'm posting uh, about a 10-minute episode in which we pray Lexio Divina. So I've talked on a couple episodes now about Lexio Divina or divine reading, this practice of prayer where you take a small passage from scripture and then prayerfully consider what God might be saying to you through it. Um, so I just started posting a few weeks ago a video each week where I take a scripture passage and then read it and you know, kind of walk us through uh, praying with that passage. So if you haven't checked it out, check it out. And if you have, thanks for checking it out. Um, this episode airs the day after our celebration of Christ the King, which means that by the time you listen to the next episode, we will have begun the season of Advent, which is just wild that we're getting ready for another another Advent, another Christmas, and, and time just marches on. So thanks for marching with me as we march through time and space, God willing, closer to Jesus every day. On today's episode, um, we will read, on the second half of the episode, we'll read paragraphs 988 through 1019, and we'll discuss the second to last line of the Apostles' Creed, which is, I believe in the resurrection of the body. So we have two more lines in the Apostles' Creed, and then we start part two of the Catechism, which is awesome. Um, so we'll talk today a little bit about the resurrection of the body, and then we'll focus on the theological virtue of faith. So we start with paragraph 989, which says this. We firmly believe, and hence we hope that, just as Christ is truly risen from the dead and lives forever, so after death the righteous will live forever with the risen Christ, and he will raise them up on the last day. Our resurrection, like his own, will be the work of the Most Holy Trinity. So first we can make a distinction uh, between two types of judgment. First, we will each experience a particular judgment. And then secondly, we will all experience um, the last judgment or final judgment. So the particular judgment comes at the end of our lives. Uh, when we die, we'll stand before the Lord and then be judged according to our faith and works, what we did and didn't do. The last judgment or final judgment comes then after the second coming of Christ, um, which we, we don't know exactly what it'll be like, um, but we do know that it's not like, you know, if we were in heaven, we'll then go to hell, or if we were in hell, we'll then go to heaven. Um, but we believe that all those who are in purgatory at the final judgment will be finally purged, cleansed, and brought to heaven. Those who at their particular judgment went to heaven remain in heaven. Those who at their particular judgment went to hell remain in hell. Um, and then our bodies, now dead in the ground, in a coffin, in a mausoleum, um, will be resurrected and joined to our bodies either in heaven or hell. Um, recall from one of our earliest episodes where I walked us through the, the setup of the catechism that there's a glossary in the back of the catechism. So if you have a physical catechism, 
um, you can, and you're ever wondering, you know, about a certain term, that's a great place to look for um, some kind of simple, concise definitions. So I'll just turn us to the glossary now. Um, if you look up judgment in the back, it says this. It first refers to our particular judgment and then the, the final or last judgment. Next to judgment, it says, the eternal, so judgment is, the eternal retribution received by each soul at the moment of death in accordance with that person's faith and works. And in parentheses, it has, quote unquote, the particular judgment. The last judgment then is God's triumph over the revolt of evil after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. Preceded by the resurrection of the dead, it will coincide with the second coming of Christ in glory at the end of time disclose good and evil, and reveal the meaning of salvation history and the providence of God by which justice has triumphed over evil. So after the final judgment, uh, again, our bodies will be resurrected and joined to our souls wherever they are, and we will then experience, God willing, heaven not only spiritually but bodily, and God forbid, not only experience hell, um, spiritually, but bodily as well. So as human beings, we are body and soul. Oftentimes when we talk about our faith and I think religious things, um, oftentimes I think uh, there's an emphasis on the spiritual, on our souls, um, on the kind of like intangible, ethereal. But remember that as human beings, we are not just souls, we are bodies as well. And one is not more important than the other. So as, as human beings, we are body and soul. And so we will experience eternity in a bodily and spiritual way, um, which is pretty amazing. So again, this segment of the catechism, paragraphs 988 through 1019, uh, talk a little more in depth about belief in this resurrection of the body, some of the particulars of that. So stay tuned for the second half of the episode um, to learn more about that. And then now I want to focus on um, the theological virtue of faith. So again, that first line of what we just read, paragraph 989, says, We firmly believe and hence we hope that. So we firmly believe and hence we hope that. Um, faith is often uh, defined as belief in things unseen. So faith is belief in things unseen. And I think a character caricature of that and what has kind of creeped into um, our visualization of faith and our oftentimes our common language of faith is that faith is kind of like closing our eyes, sticking our hands out in front of us and just like trustingly walking in the dark, okay? Not knowing what's out there, um, but just, you know, believing like, God, there's something and you will lead us to it. So that gets like a little bit at what faith is. But so again, if you flip to the glossary in the back of the catechism and look up faith, it's defined as this. Faith, both a gift of God and a human act. So both a gift of God and a human act by which the believer gives personal adherence to God who invites his response and freely assents to the whole truth that God has revealed. So it's both a gift of God and a human act. So this theological virtue comes from God. We can't conjure it up on our own um, because we are finite creatures. God is this infinite being. And um, as finite creatures, we we can't know or or be 
know all that God knows, be all that God is. And so that gift um, of, of knowledge, that invitation to higher things must come from him. But then it's a human act. So we use our intellect, our ability to reason, and our free will, our ability to choose, to respond to that gift of faith, respond to that grace, and assent to it, or if we're choosing not to cooperate with faith, uh, the gift of faith, then deny it. And God respects that. So again, it says, um, adherence to God who invites this response, and freely assents to the whole truth that God has revealed. So we must freely assent to what God is offering to us in the gift of faith. Um, again, oftentimes I think it's we have this image or people explain it in a way that conjures up images of kind of like this murky, cloudy, gray, like, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I believe and I'll just trustingly follow. Um, but it's a an act, a human act, which involves our, our reason, our intellect, and our free will, our choosing. Um, and if you think through just some of the basics of our faith, um, it, it's very rational. So we think of um, our belief in God as creator. If, if we simply look around at the world, look around at, at things we can see and taste and touch, um, it makes sense that an orderly, intelligent being created an ordered, intelligible world. So when we look around, uh, it makes sense to believe that there's a creator, an intelligent creator of all this. Um, let's say or think of the belief in original sin um, and concupiscence, as we talked about last week, our tendency to sin. Again, if we go outside and look around at the world, it makes sense that humanity is wounded and we tend towards sin. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, said that original sin is a teaching that can be proved anywhere by anyone. He said, simply walk out in the street and you see that this teaching, this belief is true. So he said, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Some deny human sin, which they can see in the street. The strongest saints and the strongest skeptics alike took positive evil as the starting point of their argument. In other words, any saint, any sinner, any believer, any non-believer simply has to walk out of his or her front door and uh, take a look around and can instantly prove that original sin is, is a thing that's alive and well. So just like belief in God as creator, um, original sin is very rational. Okay, it's, it's not something that we need to like close our eyes and, you know, reach out in the dark to believe. It makes sense. And so faith, again, is a theological virtue, uh, this gift, this grace offered to us by God, and it's also a human act. So God freely offers um, this higher understanding and knowledge, and we freely, as human beings, assent to it, and then are taken beyond just the sensible um, knowledge we have at our fingertips. When it comes to discussing faith at a basic level or a, a basic belief in God, I always like uh, using Pascal's wager. So Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, Catholic writer who lived in the 17th century. So he was known for a lot of things. Um, but one thing for which he's most known is, is his um, approach to faith, known as Pascal's wager, where he says... Um, when it comes down to it, very simply, it's a, a 
or you could treat it as a matter of probability where I have two options. I could either believe and live my life as though God existed, or I could believe and live my life as though God does not exist. If I follow the first option, the first path, God exists, well, I make my way through life believing this, living my life in accordance with this belief. I then die, and I have two options. I find out either God does exist, and it's like, whew, good thing I believed and lived my life as though he existed because here I am standing before him, and there are eternal consequences for that. Or I die, there's no God, and that's it. I didn't really lose much, maybe like a little pleasure and I don't know, wild times during my life, but I'm dead in the ground and there's nothing going on, so it doesn't really matter. It's not like I'm experiencing the loss of those those few pleasurable moments. If I choose path B or option B and believe and live as though God does not exist, I make my way through life die. And now again, there are two options. Either God exists and it's like, oh shoot, I just lived my life as though he didn't exist. And here he is, I'm standing before him. Potentially I'm now in hell for eternity. Or I die and find out that there is no God. I'm dead in the ground. It doesn't matter. I experienced nothing anyway. So Pascal says, given those four ultimate ends, I live my life as though God exists and he does exist, thank God. Whew. I live my life as though God exists, and he doesn't exist. Nah, it doesn't really matter. I live my life as though God doesn't exist. I find out then he does exist. It's like, oh, shoot. And then uh, fourth option, I live my life as though he doesn't exist, and then ultimately I find out he doesn't exist. doesn't really matter. So given my four ultimate options, I might as well live as though he exists, because if he doesn't, um, there's, Pascal says there's a finite loss. There's just a little that I lose. Again, maybe some pleasures, some luxuries, etc. But if he does exist, I receive what Pascal says are infinite gains, i.e. heaven, and I avoid infinite losses, i.e. hell. So for those coming to faith or maybe those who are skeptical about faith, I think Pascal's wager is a great starting point or a great discussion point um, where it it lays out in a very simple, logical way um, how we can approach God and, and life with God. And I think it appeals to the humanness or the human act portion of the faith definition. Um, so faith is something that involves our intellect, our free will, and God does not force himself on us, but freely offers this gift, and then we as human beings respond to it. Uh, the beauty of our faith then is that as we respond to it and say yes, there's more and more and more for us, it fills out our life in such a way that we begin to experience heaven now. So heaven is not something we experience just after our particular judgment, but we experience it even now. So eternity extends both ways on the timeline, and um, when Christ came to earth and started his public ministry, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom of heaven begins now. And so as we walk with God, as we grow in our faith, um, we experience more and more of, of that heaven that he has for each of us. Sadly, because our world is marked by original sin, it's not perfect. It's mixed with a lot of sorrow, a lot of suffering, but we get glimpses or foretastes of that heavenly banquet. 
um, one of the paragraphs we'll read on the second half of the episode is is paragraph 1003, which says, United by Christ, excuse me, united with Christ by baptism, believers already truly participate in the heavenly life of the risen Christ. So again, eternity begins now. It extends both ways on the timeline. And we can, we can start to experience, as a result of our faith, uh, the heaven that God wants for each of us. And then paragraph 1014, a little more starkly, says, If you aren't fit to face death today, it's very unlikely you will be tomorrow. Yikes. Uh, that line comes from, so paragraph 1014 is quoting from uh, this little booklet known as The Imitation of Christ. So it's written by St. Thomas Kempis. And if you've ever done St. Louis de Montfort's consecration to Jesus through Mary, then you're familiar with, with the imitation of Christ. He quotes a lot from, from that little booklet in his 33 days of preparation to consecration. Um, but again, it's a little stark there. Not a little, maybe a lot stark. If you aren't fit to face death today, it's very unlikely you will be tomorrow. So again, Christ says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Eternity starts now, so do it. I'm here. Use your intellect, use your free will to choose me because I will nothing but your good, your happiness, your blessedness, and it's up to you to accept or reject that. So by the grace of God, um, and thanks be to God, we get a lifetime to figure it out, and he gives us chance after chance after chance. But this quote is a good reminder that um, now is the time to choose. Now, eternity begins now, so now's the time to choose. While the language of the imitation of Christ is a little jarring there, um, it's written beautifully and I think has a lot of a lot of insights, a lot of wisdom, and so I recommend uh, reading it. Uh, my husband Dan and I have done, I think each year since we got married, um, this Marian consecration, we were married on August 15th, the feast of Mary's Assumption into Heaven. And so we'll do as a couple the 33 days of preparation to consecrate, reconsecrate ourselves to Jesus through Mary. Up until this year, we've used Father Michael Gately's 33 days um, preparation to consecration. But this year, we decided to go old school and use St. Louis de Montfort's 33 days of preparation and consecration. And he heavily quotes the imitation of Christ. So by the first or second day, my husband Dan turned to me and said, like, why aren't we reading this book? So um, so I got him a copy for our anniversary, for his anniversary gift. So I recommend The Imitation of Christ. Again, while the language is stark, a little jarring, it's uh, beautifully written and I think has lots of great insights, lots of wisdom um, for the day-to-day life of, of Christians. So having considered the second-to-last line, I believe in the resurrection of the body from the Apostles' Creed and talked a little bit about the theological virtue of faith, how do we proceed? So let's do three things, or I propose three things. So first, let's make a morning offering each day. Before our feet even hit the floor, let's offer our day to Jesus and ask him to do with it what he will, and in the process, make us saints and draw those around us closer to him as well. Um, so begin your prayer, however you address the Lord. Um, my sister says that I, I pray like a fourth grader. Like, hi, Jesus, I love you, good morning. Like, hey, Jesus calls us to be like the little children, so maybe I'm on the right track, okay? Even though I'm 40 years old. 
still talking like a fourth grader. Um, so greet the Lord and then just offer him every prayer, work, joy, and suffering of the day. Um, all the people entrusted to your care and prayers, all the people you will meet. I like to pray, Lord, I pray for all those whom I love and those whom I don't love as well as I should. And I just picture myself um, just placing all these people and things before the Lord. And um, we can pray too, Lord, use our faults and foibles, um, use our weaknesses um, to somehow mysteriously draw others to you and to draw us to you as well. And that might simply be um, by humbling us, okay, as we struggle with with different sins and, and different weaknesses, um, maybe it, it's just, it, it helps us stay humble, knowing that we, we need the Lord without him. Uh, we are not much, and uh, he can use that to draw us and others closer to him. Secondly, let's frequent the sacraments. So confession and the Eucharist are there to cleanse us, heal us, purify us, and then feed us, nourish us, strengthen us. And we can receive each of those sacraments every day. Um, so we all know that life is hard. It's filled with struggle and suffering. And oftentimes that struggle is a result of our own decisions. And so we have at our fingertips these two incredible sacraments to um, purify us, to help us lighten the load that we carry with us each day, and to then strengthen us, nourish us, and help us on our journey. And then thirdly, or lastly, as we talk about the resurrection of the dead, we think about and talk about our particular judgment and then the last or final judgment. Um, let's think about that last line of the Hail Mary, that last line where we pray, um, you know, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. That last part, now and at the hour of our death, amen, I think of as like a little insurance policy. Every time I pray a Hail Mary, every time I pray a rosary, it's like I'm asking the Blessed Mother, wherever I am, whatever's going on, whatever my circumstances, please be with me in that moment, interceding for me, standing by my side as I come to meet Jesus, your son. You love him, Blessed Mother. You love me. And so bring us together in a beautiful way so that particular judgment is just as, as great as it can be. So whether that's, you know, a lot of people say that, um, or I don't know about a lot of people, but people have said that, um, you know, family members and friends who prayed the rosary throughout their lives or had a devotion to the Blessed Mother or loved praying the Hail Mary, you know, miraculously at the end of their life had this, this final opportunity to go to confession before they died or, you know, had, had someone, um, you know, at their bedside who was able to uh, bring a priest to hear their confession or, or bring them the Eucharist. And so each time you pray the Hail Mary, and, um, you know, as our, our third point, how to proceed from this discussion could be to pray the Hail Mary or pray the Rosary more frequently. Um, just th think of think of that as, as kind of a beautiful little insurance policy where we're asking the Blessed Mother, um, you know, wherever I am, whatever the circumstances, be with me in that moment, intercede for me, protect and guide me, and bring me right to your son. So let's end this episode with a Hail Mary and um, pray that, that we live our lives well and that we especially live the last moments of our lives well so that we are ready to meet the Lord uh, face to face and, God willing, continue to spend eternity with him in heaven. 
So we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the gift of our lives. We thank you for having a beautiful plan for each and every one of us. And we pray um, that we will live our lives well, and especially live the last moments of our lives well, so that we may peacefully and joyfully stand before you at our particular judgment, and God willing, live the rest of eternity with you in heaven. We offer this up to you through the intercession of your mother, our mother Mary, as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Blessed Mother, we thank you for being with us now and at the hour of our death, interceding for us and bringing us all closer to your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll now take a quick break and then return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 988 through 1019. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 988 through 1019. Article 11, I Believe in the Resurrection of the Body. The Christian creed, the profession of our faith in God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in God's creative, saving, and sanctifying action, culminates in the proclamation of the resurrection of the dead on the last day and in life everlasting. We firmly believe, and hence we hope that, just as Christ is truly risen from the dead and lives forever, so after death the righteous will live forever with the risen Christ, and he will raise them up on the last day. Our resurrection, like his own, will be the work of the Most Holy Trinity. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies, also through his Spirit who dwells in you. The term flesh refers to man in his state of weakness and mortality. The resurrection of the flesh, the literal formulation of the Apostles' Creed, means not only that the immortal soul will live on after death, but that even our mortal body will come to life again. Belief in the resurrection of the dead has been an essential element of the Christian faith from its beginnings. The confidence of Christians is the resurrection of the dead. Believing this, we live. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's Resurrection and Ours The Progressive Revelation of the Resurrection God revealed the resurrection of the dead to his people progressively. Hope in the bodily resurrection of the dead established itself as a consequence intrinsic to faith in God as creator of the whole man, soul, and body. The creator of heaven and earth is also the one who faithfully maintains his covenant with Abraham and his posterity. It was in this double perspective that faith in the resurrection came to be expressed. In their trials, the Maccabean martyrs confessed, The king of the universe will raise us up to everlasting renewal of life, because we have died for his laws. One cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. 
The Pharisees and many of the Lord's contemporaries hoped for the resurrection. Jesus teaches it firmly. To the Sadducees who deny it, he answers, Is not this why you are wrong, that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Faith in the resurrection rests on faith in God, who is not God of the dead, but of the living. But there is more. Jesus links faith in the resurrection to his own person. I am the resurrection and the life. It is Jesus himself who on the last day will raise up those who have believed in him, who have eaten his body and drunk his blood. Already, now in this present life, he gives a sign and pledge of this by restoring some of the dead to life, announcing thereby his own resurrection, though it was to be of another order. He speaks of this unique event as the sign of Jonah, the sign of the temple. He announces that he will be put to death, but rise thereafter on the third day. To be a witness to Christ is to be a witness to his resurrection, to have eaten and drunk with him after he rose from the dead. Encounters with the risen Christ characterize the Christian hope of resurrection. We shall rise like Christ with him and through him. From the beginning, Christian faith in the resurrection has met with incomprehension and opposition. On no point does the Christian faith encounter more opposition than on the resurrection of the body. It is very commonly accepted that the life of the human person continues in a spiritual fashion after death. But how can we believe that this body, so clearly mortal, could rise to everlasting life? How do the dead rise? What is rising? In death, the separation of the soul from the body, the human body decays and the soul goes to meet God, while awaiting its reunion with its glorified body. God, in his almighty power, will definitively grant incorruptible life to our bodies by reuniting them with our souls through the power of Jesus' resurrection. Who will rise? All the dead will rise, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. How? Christ is raised with his own body. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. But he did not return to an earthly life. So, in him, all of them will rise again with their own bodies, which they now bear. But Christ will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body, into a spiritual body. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish man, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body which is to be, but a bare kernel. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. The dead will be raised imperishable, for this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. This how exceeds our imagination and understanding. It is accessible only to faith. Yet our participation in the Eucharist already gives us a foretaste of Christ's transfiguration of our bodies. Just as bread that comes from the earth, after God's blessing has been invoked upon it, is no longer ordinary bread but Eucharist, formed of two things, the one earthly and the other heavenly, so too our bodies, which partake of the Eucharist, are no longer corruptible, but possess the hope of resurrection. When, definitively, at the last day, at the end of the world, indeed the resurrection of the dead is closely associated with Christ's parousia. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Risen with Christ. Christ will raise us up on the last day. But it is also true that in a certain way, we have already risen with Christ. For by virtue of the Holy Spirit, 
Christian life is already now on earth a participation in the death and resurrection of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. United with Christ by baptism, believers already truly participate in the heavenly life of the risen Christ. But this life remains hidden with Christ in God. The Father has already raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Nourished with his body in the Eucharist, we already belong to the body of Christ. When we rise on the last day, we also will appear with him in glory. In expectation of that day, the believer's body and soul already participate in the dignity of belonging to Christ. This dignity entails the demand that he should treat with respect his own body, but also the body of every other person, especially the suffering. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You are not your own. So glorify God in your body. Dying in Christ Jesus. To rise with Christ, we must die with Christ. We must be away from the body and at home with the Lord. In that departure, which is death, the soul is separated from the body. It will be reunited with the body on the day of resurrection of the dead. Death. It is in regard to death that man's condition is most shrouded in doubt. In a sense, bodily death is natural, but for faith it is in fact the wages of sin. For those who die in Christ's grace, it is a participation in the death of the Lord, so that they can also share his resurrection. Death is the end of earthly life. Our lives are measured by time, in the course of which we change, grow old, and as with all living beings on earth, death seems like the normal end of life. That aspect of death lends urgency to our lives. Remembering our mortality helps us realize that we have only a limited time in which to bring our lives to fulfillment. Remember remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Death is a consequence of sin. The church's magisterium, as authentic interpreter of the affirmations of scripture and tradition, teaches that death entered the world on account of man's sin. Even though man's nature is mortal, God has destined him not to die. Death was therefore contrary to the plans of God the Creator and entered the world as a consequence of sin. Bodily death, from which man would have been immune had he not sinned, is thus the last enemy of man left to be conquered. Death is transformed by Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, also himself suffered the death that is part of the human condition. Yet, despite his anguish as he faced death, he accepted it in an act of complete and free submission to his Father's will. The obedience of Jesus has transformed the curse of death into a blessing. The meaning of Christian death. Because of Christ, Christian death has a positive meaning. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The saying is sure, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. What is essentially new about Christian death is this. Through baptism, the Christian has already died with Christ, sacramentally, in order to live a new life. And if we die in Christ's grace... Physical death completes this dying with Christ, and so completes our incorporation into him in his redeeming act. It is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to reign over the ends of the earth. Him it is I seek, who died for us. Him it is I desire, who rose for us. 
I am on the point of giving birth. Let me receive pure light. When I shall have arrived there, then shall I be a man. In death, God calls man to himself. Therefore, the Christian can experience a desire for death like St. Paul's. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. He can transform his own death into an act of obedience and love towards the Father after the example of Christ. My earthly desire has been crucified. There is living water in me, water that murmurs and says within me, Come to the Father. That was St. Ignatius of Antioch. I want to see God, and in order to see him, I must die. That was from St. Teresa of Avila. I am not dying, I am entering life. That's St. Therese of Lisieux. The Christian vision of death receives privileged expression in the liturgy of the church. Lord, for your faithful people, life is changed, not ended. When the body of our earthly dwelling lies in death, we gain an everlasting dwelling place in heaven. Death is the end of man's earthly pilgrimage, of the time of grace and mercy which God offers him so as to work out his earthly life in keeping with the divine plan and to decide his ultimate destiny. When the single course of our earthly life is completed, we shall not return to other earthly lives. It is appointed for men to die once. There is no reincarnation after death. The church encourages us to prepare ourselves for the hour of our death. In the ancient liturgy of the saints, for instance, she has us pray, From a sudden and unforeseen death, deliver us, O Lord. To ask the Mother of God to intercede for us at the hour of our death in the Hail Mary, and to entrust ourselves to St. Joseph, the patron of a happy death. Every action of yours, every thought, should be those of one who expects to die before the day is out. Death would have no great terrors for you if you had a quiet conscience. Then why not keep clear of sin instead of running away from death? If you aren't fit to face death today, it's very unlikely you will be tomorrow. Praised are you, my Lord, for our sister bodily death from whom no living man can escape. Woe on those who will die in mortal sin. Blessed are they who will be found in your most holy will, for the second death will not harm them. In brief, the flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh. By death, the soul is separated from the body, but in the resurrection, God will give incorruptible life to our body, transformed by reunion with our soul. Just as Christ is risen and lives forever, so all of us will rise at the last day. We believe in the true resurrection of this flesh that we now possess. We sow a corruptible body in the tomb, but he raises up an incorruptible body, a spiritual body. As a consequence of original sin, man must suffer bodily death from which man would have been immune had he not sinned. Jesus, the Son of God, freely suffered death for us in complete and free submission to the will of God, his Father. By his death, he has conquered death, and so opened the possibility of salvation to all men. This brings us to the end of our catechism selection for the week and the end of our episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please check out Catholic Light Podcast on YouTube and join me for Alexio Divina of one of this week's gospel passages. Uh, please also connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. And please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. 
Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.